a quick message before we get started on this podcast. First, if you have any subject that you would like us to talk about, please do reach out. We are interested in shining a light on any topic that would be interesting for administration and the operation of an improv comedy theater. So that is both if you have a specific topic that you would like us to talk about, and also if you know any people who would be knowledgeable in the given topic. You can find us in the Comus admin community, and if you are not yet a part of that, you can send us an email, or you can send me an email at simon at comus.io, and that is simon, S-I-M-O-N, the at symbol, C-U-L-M-A-S dot I-O. And then secondly, I had a guest here who experienced some hardware trouble. Um, And it's the first time that we do a podcast like this, so we weren't able to do troubleshooting in the moment. And that meant that Marius unfortunately dropped out during the conversation. Luckily, he and I work out of offices that are right next door to each other. And he and I have agreed that we will do a part two of this podcast, hopefully very soon. I've left a snippet or two in the recording just before he starts to experience these issues. Um, I've left that in just for context. Both Chris and Michael brought their A-game. And I think we ended up having an interesting conversation. Without any further ado, let's get into it. Uh, welcome to the first uh, Colmas podcast. Um, today I have three gentlemen with me. Uh, we have Michael from the Bit Theater, uh, just outside Hello. Chicago. Uh, we have we have Chris Mead from uh, London. Hello, uh, everyone. <laughs> and then we have uh, we have Marius who is uh, experiencing uh, a bit of issue right now, uh, but he will be with us in a moment. Uh, Marius is, of course, the artistic director here from Improv Comedy Coping. Uh, so welcome. Thank you for having us. Um, today, I want to talk about thematic improv um, and how we can um, do improv that lies maybe outside of a, let's say, normal level system. Uh, And each of these three people have done some of this thematic improv in their own right. Um, And hopefully we can, in the Calmas Network, utilize some of these, uh, some of the expertise um, to help other improvisers create constant classes and shows on their own. We're going to jump straight into the first question. That question is, is thematic improv necessarily narrative improv? Ours isn't. Uh, so the improv, yeah, yeah. I think, I think if you're going to do something like improvised Harry Potter or, you know, improvised Marvel Cinematic Universe or something like that, you're probably going to fall more on the narrative side, I would suspect. But uh, I don't think it has to be. And certainly you could have something Harry Potter themed or Marvel themed um, and and take it in a different direction and have, you know, a day in the life of Iron Man. I don't know. I don't watch those movies very <laughs> often. I'd, I'd watch that. 
maybe there's also a definition like to me like cement am i muted or am i not going through i'm gonna have to log out and come in again yeah i don't know how far you got but, but i was just uh, the definition between sort of uh, thematic improv and narrative improv is maybe interesting also just to make that clear what are the differences there where I was thinking a bit by, about Harry Potter um, is maybe, yeah, there's some clear, yeah, I don't know. Is that a genre, Harry Potter? Or is it like, to me, it's almost become a genre, um, but maybe it's more of a, a fantasy genre for, you know, within wizard world kind of lore. Uh, and there's some themes that make um, Harry Potter unique. Is that how to understand that? I think that's I think that's super accurate. Yeah, I think we did a um over Halloween we did a, a horror movie or horror show. Um and you know we were pulling tropes from all kinds of different horror movies in that genre. And I think for Harry Potter or Star Trek or even Shakespeare, there's certain things that you know you kind of have to hit when I was the last theater I was at, there was a Shakespeare troupe and the, the guy who was the coach of that troupe basically said, he's like, everyone either gets married or gets killed at the end. And like, that's just the Shakespeare trope. So I think maybe what you're saying, Marius is, is accurate. It's just maybe Harry Potter is a little bit more specific of that genre. We know those exact things um, from Harry Potter versus pulling from like, many different horror movies or sci-fi or fantasy or something like that. Yeah. Okay. okay. I don't know. That's yeah. just my opinion. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that's really true. I think certain properties, certain intellectual properties, certain authors become a genre in their own right. Shakespeare, you know, wasn't a genre <laughs> when he was writing, but he's become one through dint of popularity. I would argue that's the case with Harry Potter, with Star Wars. Star Wars is a genre within science fiction because there's certain things that happen there. Star Trek as well, you know, that I do think that there's just certain things that become so culturally ubiquitous that they become a theme, a genre, all of their own. Yeah, I so when I when I looked at uh, your your different uh, uh, let's say content, different shows, different classes, um, it uh, there was an interesting thing that you're also talking about right now, like the the difference between something in a horror genre and something in a let's say a Harry Potter genre. So these uh, all else being equal it's probably going to be easier for you to, to dive deeper for a longer time in a horror show than a Harry Potter show. Um, if you see the Harry Potter, the troupe doing the Harry Potter show multiple times over, let's say, some weeks, it's probably going to be easier for the troupe to uh, find new ways of doing the show. Uh, so my question is, uh, does the theme that you pick have a um, um, a meaningful impact on the longevity of, say, a show. That's a great point. I would say definitely because if you can, if you're marketing your show as you know a splatter house kind of or whatever a horror show, one week it could be you know a suspenseful Suspiria kind of 
movie or whatever that you're borrowing tropes from the next week it could be a slasher flick the next week it could be you know hostile or whatever those like horror horror porn almost ones are and like there's so much more i guess breadth of material to mine from versus if you were doing harry potter where i mean you're i don't think you're ever i think you're only confined by what you want to be confined by but if you're really honoring harry potter you're not going to have you know, a lightsaber in Harry Potter because it's not going to be honoring what the, the thing mm. actually is. Or, you know, I, I don't guess I don't know Harry Potter enough, but even if you stuck in that fantasy genre and you went outside and had, you know, barbarians, I guess, or, or something that's sort of tangentially related but is not true to Harry Potter, I guess. I reckon you could get, you could project some kind of laser sword <laughs> from the end of your wand if you needed to. That doesn't feel like some. I feel like a, a wizard could do that if they really needed a lightsaber. <laughs> um, but I was really interested in your point, Simon. I do think there's real uh, interesting considerations because actually sometimes when you go niche, you find an audience who will want to come to your show over and over again. You know, Harry Potter fans are... are are rabid fans. I, I Actually, sometimes when you go super niche you are actually going to have much more longevity in the show in terms of being able to sell it to an audience. Now, as you say, maybe week to week, your shows aren't going to look as super different as if you create something as wide as the horror genre. You know, Scream is so uh, different to, uh, as Michael was saying, Suspiria or something, you know, an art house horror flick. So you're going to have a lot more fun as a cast and have to create a lot of, more tools i think in order to do that well but in terms of market marketability something that is like it's this property i think is super profitable and there's you know harry potter troops in the uk spontaneous potter who uh, is one who are brilliant an edinburgh based company and they have been going for years and years and years they go and tour to huge venues they are you know hugely successful because people want to go and see that. Or Ostentatious, who are now in the West End. All they they ever do is Jane Austen. So it's not even just romance, it's specifically Jane Austen. And they are wildly successful. Well, you guys did... Uh, yeah, I mean, you did Tim Burton, uh, Chris. Um, you did Tim Burton, which is also... It's, it's a, that's also kind of niche... Or he is, he has his own style, I would say, genre. Um, but then going in you know, different um, directions with it. or But sort of, yeah, I thought that was also sort of an... In what, why did you choose, besides, I'm assuming, some kind of passion and appreciation for uh, Tim Burton? Was there any thoughts in terms of marketability or sort of when you landed on Tim Burton? Yeah. I think Tim Burton stylistically, visually is so strong. And um, we're really not going for all of Tim Burton. We're going for yeah. Nightmare Before Christmas, Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice, that that stuff, all the black and white ghosts and ghouls, because obviously he's done a lot more stuff than that. Um, so we, we've, we're we even more uh, specific than just Tim Burton. Mm. We're like, it's the early stuff. It's the... It's that you know the 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 ghouls stuff, um, yeah. And I think it's just a really fun playground to play in, and visually it's so easy to create and 
um, and people get it, people see it. So, yeah, I think that was one of the reasons. We're not necessarily the biggest Tim Burton fans in the world, like his stuff. We just thought, oh, mm. yeah, we could do that justice. We could we could really get under the skin of that as a, as a genre, as a theme. Can I jump back to something Chris had said a, a second ago about the marketability? One of the things that we are discovering when trying to introduce people to what long-form improv is even though we're outside of Chicago, which is a big hub of, of improv, a lot of people don't understand what we're doing. <laughs> so some of these things, so I agree with Chris on the marketability. One of the reasons that we're trying to do more things like this is it's a lot harder to market a show that is, hey, come see three teams do long form improv versus come out and see an improvised trial, come out and see improvised Shakespeare, come out and see improvised Harry mm -hmm. Potter, come out and see improvised Marvel, something that they're already familiar with. We can almost piggyback on the popularity of these big things, Tim Burton, uh, these big things that people are already familiar with and are like, oh, I know that thing. So I'm going to come out and see that thing. So I think Chris has a great point about that being more marketable than just even even just saying come see an improvised horror movie versus come see improvised friday the 13th or something like that i think is is a really great point from yeah. from chris i would agree with that uh, we did film noir we did film noir for a while and i think that was not a you know it wasn't in the zeitgeist uh, <laughs> at the time we did decided to do film noir Very cool. Um, okay, I've, and then uh, another question arises, um, actually, for the Oud cast uh, and, and for uh, for you, Chris. Um, so now we're talking a lot about how. Well, also we're also talking about how like content can be created within these themes. Uh, the Oud cast is a Doctor Who uh, podcast, and you you follow um, the themes, the episodes as they are uh, published say yeah um that, that's kind of like having someone do like a uh an assembly line for you ish does that mm. help you in like coming up with content yeah so the idea behind the ucast is doctor who has a, a, a is one of those very very uh, vocal fan bases people are very furious all the time with every decision that the program <laughs> makes. Um, we just loved the show. You know, I've loved Doctor Who since I was seven years old um, and I'm 42 now and it's been going that whole time. You know, this is the other thing about Doctor Who. It gets passed from production team to production team. Um, we didn't want to just say all the things that we hated about episodes that didn't feel like a fun thing to watch and so we use the sketches the funny stuff to just poke at the things that don't quite make sense but do it in a loving way so i really like that you know using comedy using uh that the improv side of it to say well obviously this doesn't make any sense but it's Doctor Who and we're still incredibly warm and love it. It just feels a much nicer way to engage with the material. And yeah, you're right. If you do it sort of as a review of the latest episode, then you always have new material, new characters. And that's particularly true of Doctor Who. I mean, I know this is probably not that interesting, but Doctor Who is about a time traveller, so every week is somewhere different. Every other TV series has standing sets, right? They have their headquarters they have the places that they the coffee shop they always go to the 
you can build a set and just keep it. With Doctor Who, you just have the time machine and every week you step out to an entirely new world. It's less a time machine, more a genre machine, really. Uh, And so that is very cool in terms of always keeping it fresh, always keeping it new. Yeah. What what happens to the, let's say, the uh, content assembly line when uh, it then takes a hiatus or something like that? Well, some people then do all the audio plays and the books and the comics. Um, I'm afraid for me, because it's so intensive when we're doing it, we just we just do seasons like the TV show has seasons. So our podcast will be on when the TV series is current. And then when it's not, we stop and do other <laughs> things. Uh, so, yeah, for me, I, I but, you know, podcasts nowadays can be organized into seasons. Apple uh, and other podcatchers give you that metadata tags to allow you to say, like, this is season eight. And so it works really well in that way. Do you think that would also work as a as a show to do uh, improv show seasons? Yeah, um, it, it does happen, actually, quite a lot. Um, Dynasty in Canada, in Edmonton. Edmonton, rather. Um, obviously, Dynasty is a, is a play on Dynasty, the uh, the soap, uh, and they have seasons with a certain. Uh, so they'll have characters that they play for a number of months uh, in one season, in one genre, in one theme, and then they'll put it to bed at the end of that. And that will be one story over multiple weeks. Uh, so they'll have a season, and then they'll do something completely different. So this will be set in Western times. This will be set in. British Victorian times this will be set in space and that will be that season um, but it'll be the same ca- um, cast you know same core improvisers they're just they're just doing a completely new season each time so yeah works really well because people want to come back and see who each actor is going to play this time and and it's, yeah they build fans in the way that a TV series or a podcast builds fans that's a I, I wasn't aware that any improvisers was doing that. That's it, uh, exciting. It's I very think. cool. Yeah, it, it helps that they're incredible improvisers as well. Right? Have right. you seen them? How how is that for uh, uh, your the content that you do at the bit for the shows? Uh, are they um, like one off, or do you keep the show going? I'm more? super interested to hear more about this. If Chris has seen this, because what, that's one of the yeah, things so. I really want to explore more is a serialized version of a show to, to just like Chris said, for that sort of catch that like FOMO of people like wanting to know how the story is progressing. Um, so I was for me, the, the one of the things that we've hesitated in doing it is because you know, for the people, I do want the people that have just shown up and seen improv for the first time that night to know what's going on. So I wonder if dynasty does like a, like a recap, like previously on kind of before the, is that what they do? Oh, I they love do. it. Yeah. So yeah. So the first part is you have each character walk on and the, the there's a director who sort of puts different characters together and they will introduce each group of characters who will then come on and say something theatrical or silly like and this week professor mr misto is building the monster and the actor playing professor misto will come to the front and say soon i will conquer the world and just have a little kind of so you sort of get each character and you know what they're doing and what they're 
like their current thing is. It's really interesting because Dynasty they also do as a fifty hour um, stay up for fifty hours and just do every two hours a new episode. They also do it as a condensed marathon oh. as well. And those little bits at the beginning really help. They help us as performers remember what we're doing as well. Because after fifty hours, you sort of think you are the character at that point. And it's uh, a little bit surreal. A little bit in answer to your question too, Simon. I had done, this It wasn't at the theater, but I would love to bring this back. I had done a podcast, uh, an improvised detective story called The Bureau Boys. Marius, you might like this too, because it was very like, wow, back in the day, it was a very like sort of noir-y kind of um, uh, serialized, improvised though, um, detective story. So, and we did it in seasons. I think we had five seasons that we just would solve a mystery and you know every <clears throat> excuse me every week we'd get a clue from an informant which was kind of our get for that episode and that would be the kind of how we would progress the thing and move the thing along and that it always end on a cliffhanger so I'd always introduce the next episode by cutting together a couple of clips from the previous episode and do a little bit of a previously on and then go into the next thing so I would I I'm going to have to talk to you more off my Chris about this because I love this idea and I would love to, to collaborate more on that and something like that. Yeah. I, uh, this serialized idea is also like just as an audience member, that would be, uh, exciting to watch. And as a theater, you can also offer a yes. season pass. They might not take it up every week, but then you're getting, um, something up front there. And a lot of people will, and it will be much better, you know, it, it, it feels like value as well. When you, if you're doing a whole season, we're going to do this many shows. You can come to as many as you want for this idea. amount. Like, yeah, why should sports fans have all the, all, all the season great ticket idea. fun? We've talked a bit about tropes and, and that kind of, or motif, perhaps. It, it seems like that's um, at, perhaps at the core of your thinking about how do we effectuate this theme in a class or in a show. Um, can you talk a bit about how we find those troops? Troops? Tropes? <laughs> how do you find tropes to uh, support your thematic improv? I, I mean, I think Chris kind of alluded to it. I, I don't think you're really going to have a successful show that doesn't at least come out of some love for the source material, I think. Um, you know, if I... I love Star Wars. I grew up on Star Wars. I'm sure all of us are kind of of that certain age. At least Chris and I are of that certain age where we kind of grew up on Star Wars. And so I could tomorrow do an improvised Star Wars show. I don't know how great it would be to start with, but I know enough about that source material to be able to put it up. I know the, and like Chris said with Doctor Who, I lovingly hate the prequels. And like, um, I know those things, the reasons why that, certain of those movies are bad i know about the feud between jj and uh what's his name the knives ryan, out guy. Johnson. ryan johnson thank you um and uh so i can poke lovingly poke fun at all that stuff because even though i didn't like a, i probably have liked fewer star wars movies than i've loved at this point but i know all the material i've seen all of the ones even the ones i've hate i hate multiple times and can you know, be that kind of nerd that I, I I can back up my dislike of the of Last Jedi or whatever, uh, and and while still having sort of a respect for the source material. 
Do you do anything specifically to get alignment within the team? Or is it more of a, and each individual brings their own notion of what it means to be in the Star Wars universe, for example? Um, can I, I'll jump in very quickly on that one. I, I mean, I agree 100% with Michael. I think you have to be a fan. I've seen too many shows that are cynical cash-ins where there doesn't appear to be any love there. You have to have that love there. Even if you disagree with bits and pieces within the IP, you do need to have that, I think. And you need to become a fan and you need to see it. In terms of how you then create it, you, you need to create a set of improv tools. You need to create a set of ways that you are all going to be on stage that create this theme. And there's some beautiful examples of that. Um, I'll talk about one because I think it's so brilliant. It's not mine. Paper Street Theatre did a Tarantino show. <laughs> and so they need to work out how are you going to put that on stage? What what improv tools are you going to use and which ones are you going to not use, which is just as important in some ways. So one of the uh, improv things that they came up with was that everyone would have a pocket full of red confetti. So each improviser would have a pocket full of, of sort of glittery red confetti. And if you were going to be shot, because people get shot in Tarantino films. I, I don't know if you know this about Tarantino. <laughs> um, you couldn't shoot someone else. You had to indicate that you were going to be shot by taking the 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 handful of, of, of confetti out of, out of your pocket and putting it where you're going to get shot. And then you, as the person being shot, would indicate that you were being shot by throwing the confetti out from your body as if it was an impact wound. Um, and that's so clever in a lot of ways. Number one, because it looks beautiful theatrically. But number two, it means that no player can shoot another player and take their their character out. You have to say, I want my character's story to end here. So do you see how like working that stuff out in rehearsal, it, it, it makes the genre seem more real visually, but it's also really clever, like super clever in terms of, taking care of the players and how we want that to go. Because otherwise you'd just have people shooting each other all the time and no stories kind of getting to their conclusion by putting the power of death in the hands of the person playing the, the character. You're saying, this is the kind of show we want to do. And um, so it's stuff like that. And that's a really brilliant example. I think, um, you know what they did there, but you, but it can also be like, um, okay, we are going to play out, um, I don't know. We, we, yeah, we're going to do a narrative show. We're going to, um, we're only going to do scenes that that have people uh, that have situations that happen in real life. That will give you a certain feeling to the show. So you just need to agree as a cast what is in play and what isn't in play for this show. Going into the mock trial for you, Michael. Uh, how do you find that uh, alignment? Uh, what's in play and what's out of play. So it was, I hate to say easy because nothing in improv is easy, but I mean, it's really an improvised trial. I went to law school. I know the parts of a trial. So I just did a treatment that was just, you know, essentially what happens in a trial. And, you know, obviously we had the, the parts for it. We had prosecution, we had defense, we had a, a victim, we had a perpetrator, we had a judge. We had uh, and uh, we had a key witness, uh, so we would pull one. We would basically act out the crime at the beginning and pull the lights right before you saw whether the crime actually happened. 
So then anyone in the house is the jury. So we could call someone from the house to actually be the like eyewitness. And then we had um, an expert witness that we would get a get from what they were an expert on. And that would be in the cast. And then we would have a surprise witness after the, um, after the intermission. So, I mean, honestly, again, I hate to say that it was easy because we worked on it a lot, but, uh, but the, to lay the treatment out and lay the parts out wasn't really that difficult because it was just, I mean, it's a trial, what happens in a trial. And then of course there's a verdict and we get to have like the polling on a screen and guilty or not guilty. And then there's a, a, um, capital punishment. So we have a pun competition at the end that everyone kind of gets involved in. So it's, uh, it laid out really, really nicely. And the, the thing that I want to be as a, as a theater owner and want to encourage is that we're growing these things together. So I really want the cast to have a ton of input as to what the thing is. So my treatment started off in a certain way and we ended up, you know, relatively close to what I, the beats that I thought we should hit, but with a ton of like the cast input on what like the the pun competition organically happened on one of a, one of the nights and we're like we should do this every single night and have it end with like this this you know 99 blanks or 185 blanks whatever you do like a line game kind of thing um so yeah it's uh it 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 didn't lay out I mean, it laid out relatively simply versus like Chris was saying, you know, knowing the source material, if you were to do something that's copyrighted, (laughs) um, was a little bit more, would, would require a little bit more background knowledge. I wouldn't like cast someone into a Harry Potter or Star Wars or something like that and say, here, here's, you know, 40 hours of source material that you have to watch to be in this cast. I think you kind of have to find those people that are already into, or Doctor Who is thousands of hours, I'm sure. Like, I think you've had to find those people that have already invested that time and cast it that way versus retrofitting, I think, the cast to what they like. But I'll tell you, our, my cast in Mock Trial, I would legitimately hire them as my lawyer <laughs> because they're really good at, at questioning witnesses and doing those things. Nice, nice. How did you figure out uh, what the elements uh, that goes into that structure was like uh, how many times did you practice it and how did that kind of emerge evolve? was it was so it in law school or? we literally had to do mock trial so i knew i oh. knew that part i mean so I, I i i had a little bit of litigation experience when i first got out of law school so um and then you know i always in the back of my head i'm thinking about my parents and thinking, oh, you're not using your law degree that much. Now I am a practicing lawyer, but so I was like, okay, as I'm doing this improv thing, it would be nice to kind of rope in something that I actually have in my past. So, um, so yeah, I mean, really just thinking about, and you know, we don't have the, I'm sure if a judge or a litigation attorney watched our trial, although one did, and he said we were pretty accurate as to how a trial would actually go. But um, we don't really have, we definitely lean into like the law and order tropes and like the trial TV kind of tropes um, a little bit more. So it's not, I, I wouldn't use mocked trial as a teaching tool for lawyers, but it is, it's a really fun show. It's probably one of my favorite shows that we, that we put up at the theater. Nice. Nice. Did that uh, even answer your too. question? No, uh, um, Maybe there's something like on a 
if if we had to go in on a, like a low level what what's uh like how many times do you practice the show before it it comes on and when does the show kind of begin to feel like it's something you want to put on stage so we probably rehearsed it for just once a week for probably probably three months maybe two two and a half three months we probably had we probably had about 10 rehearsals i would think before we put it up for the first time and i think that helped having i i hate limiting improv i hate like telling people that this is the way the improv has to go because i mean that's kind of what i think heralds are kind of that way where people get a little bit caught up in what the structure is and are afraid to have fun and explore but I think it actually served us pretty well to have a pretty thorough treatment of it before we even started trying to put it up. Cause then we had the freedom to play kind of in those parameters and then mess around and go outside of those parameters to find the fun things and find the interesting things. So like, for example, the, I, we realized that the, the show was going to be really, really long if we did everything we wanted to. So the, uh, Ed Colosi is a great improviser around here. He's kind of been our regular judge because he's perfect. He plays the part perfectly. He suggested doing the eyewitness testimony as like the game Half-Life where they have a minute to testify and then they get 30 seconds to testify, 15 seconds to testify. And so like the lawyers are going back and forth, examining them, cross-examining them. So it, we figured out some things just by necessity of wanting to tighten it up and just by putting it up and seeing seeing what happened. So I think, I, I assume something, I'll let Chris speak to this. I assume it would be different for something like Doctor Who though. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Doctor Who is, I think it's a, it's a funny example because it's been so many different things over so much time. You could probably find the show being whatever you wanted it to be you know sometimes it's a romantic comedy <laughs> sometimes it's a horror sometimes it's pure sci-fi sometimes the bad guy is made of candy it's you could basically do anything and say yep back in the 60s they did that <laughs> um yeah so it's a it, it's a it's a it's a weird example <laughs> Did you have a lot of pre-rehearsing though before, or do, were you just like, "Hey, we, we're a bunch of Doctor Who fans. Let's throw this thing up." No, we we did rehearse um, quite a bit, and we did yeah. we took different because we're geeks. We took different showrunners because uh, Russell T <laughs> Davis Doctor Who, when it came back in two thousand and five, is very different to when Stephen Moffat took over. Very different to the show now. Um, so we actually went through different eras and then set set up our own tools for those eras you know as i said before what will we use and what won't we use how does that differ one showrunner is incredibly into time travel as a um as an actual tool to tell the plot you know going back in time and changing things but an, another showrunner will only use time travel as a way to get to the new location so it's more like this one is set in caveman times and then won't use time travel after that. And they, so that's a very different feel to the show at that point. So yeah, so we would actually change that. We would actually um, rehearse those so that whatever the audience asked of us, we could do something within, within the, the larger uh, body of work. 
as I said before, we are just so geeky. I wouldn't recommend going into that much detail. <laughs> we just enjoyed it. And that goes back to do a show that you love, that you're a fan of. Um, I'm doing two classes at the moment. One of them is called Improv Cinema Club, and we do a different director each week. And the other one is based on 90s point-and-click adventure games like a Secret of Monkey <gasps> Island and Day of the Tentacle. Now I'm doing that because I love those two things. And if I can sell it, if there's another other people like me who want to do it, I only need 12 people, right, <laughs> to do that. And this means that I get to, with Improv Cinema Club, I get to watch a wide range of films by directors that I hadn't enjoyed the work of before. Uh, and then and in Point and Click Adventure, I get to just do the thing that I was obsessed, obsessed with during my teenage years and make it an improv show. So yeah, for me, it very much is like find the thing that you love, find the thing that you have a perspective on, not the profitable thing, the one that you're like, oh, I'd love to spend 40 hours taking in all of that material and then working out how to turn it into an, an improv thing. And you can prep for the new Monkey Island that's coming out, what, this yeah, year Yeah, so it's perfect, <laughs> you see. There's another thing. I would take that in a heartbeat. <laughs> I would take that class in a heartbeat. I'm sad that I'm across the pond. Oh, I'm doing it online. So uh, maybe we could <gasps> uh, talk about it at some point. <laughs> Send me a link. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Chris, now, uh, one thing that you talk about on your uh, long form thoughts blog that, uh, by the way, if any lis listeners um, are interested in that, you can subscribe to his uh, newsletter. Um, one thing that you talk about is the, let's say the difficulties or trials, perhaps that a troop goes through in, in like the early stages, um, can have different effects on the troop. And, and maybe it's, uh, there, there's a certain point where that they have to kind of get over. Um, do you see that more so in thematic improv if you have to really be geeky around this one topic or is it like any other it's a really improv? great question I, i'm sure michael have has gone through many an improv troupe in his time and it can be so painful when a team splits up uh and and i think that's to do with everyone has a different amount of energy to pour into a group but as we're talking specifically thematic i think you need a director I think you need someone, if you're going to create this show, you need someone who, at the end of the day, the buck stops with them and they're going to make the choices because people are going to be super passionate about it and they're going to have different opinions and you need someone who can listen to them. But at the end of the day, go, this is the one we're going to do for this show and I will watch you do it. Uh, and probably the director shouldn't be in the show as well because you cannot give notes to someone you're performing with at the same time. So... In an ideal world, you want someone to step out and say, I'm going to create this show. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to make some decisions over what we're going, what tropes we're going to use and how we, how that becomes improv tools. And then we will adjust as we go along, but I'm going to have the final decision on it. I think that really helps longevity because otherwise you're going to have a lot of very smart, very committed people who have slightly different views on how to bring it to stage and that's going to destroy you. So yeah, if you can start with clear roles before you even get to the point where you're creating the show, then 
it's going to be so much better. Please don't just go in and try and all do it as a as a concerted effort altogether. It it just won't work. You will lose friends. You will lose collaborators, and that's really hard. Oh, it's so hard. I think, especially what Chris is saying, one of the the boons of of casting this is having someone that's super passionate. I think can work against you in this regard because just like Chris said, the doctor who went in his podcast, the doctor who fans that are mad about everything that you're going to, you kind of want those people in your cast, but then on the flip side of that, you know, if they're really going to dig their heels in and really be super passionate about, well, I want to do a uh, Moffat's version of doctor who, and I insist, I insist, I insist, cause that's the true doctor who or whatever it is, then you're, you need that voice of reason. You need that person to just kind of say, okay, guys, we're going to, all of your, your opinions are, are valid where I'm hearing everything. And also you want the cast to be able to, if they are going to get mad at something, be able to focus on, focus that anger on the director. Cause I don't care if the cast is mad at me. That's fine. Like, cause I'm gonna have to make some hard calls at some point. We're gonna have to move around cast members. I'm going to put them in a role that they don't necessarily want to do that week, but that's okay if they're mad at me because like Chris said, I'm not standing up there next to them on stage. They have to care about the people. And frankly, sometimes it helps if they all are mad at me because then they have a common enemy and then they're united on stage. So um, it's certainly, I don't want them mad at somebody that they're then have to go up on stage and perform for 90 minutes with because that's that carries through. I, I tell them before every show, I'm like, you guys have fun. And if you need to break rules, break rules, because if you're having fun up there, it's going to translate to the house and they're going to see how much fun you're having. And I'm never going to yell at you guys that you didn't get to a certain beat that I wrote in a treatment, you know, seven years ago. So uh, do the thing, do the thing that makes you guys happy, because that's honestly, I think what we should be doing as improvisers in the first place is if we're not having fun on stage, why are we doing improv for free, basically? So. Yeah, I think I really like what Michael says here. And, I, you know, Patty Styles always says tools rather than rules. And I think that's what you're saying. Like, rules are there yes. until you need to break them. They're not really rules. They're, a, they're a, a thing to use to have fun, to create great content. And I love that. Yeah, what are we doing up there if we're not having fun? Uh, so, yeah, super agree with yeah. that. And I, I just want to jump on something else that you just alluded to, Michael, that I'm really interested in when it comes to thematic improv, which is do you precast people in certain parts in the show? Because, um, you know, improv purists would be like, no, it's all going to be found in the moment. But I just do not agree with that, too. If you're doing the Doctor Who show, you need to know who's going to be the Doctor beforehand because that's a big role. And you want to be able to make sure that different people do it in different uh, uh, different nights, uh, you know, because otherwise there'll be the super enthusiastic foot forward person who is just always the protagonist. And I think it's really nice to to have right. those roles and all practice doing all roles. But then, you know, I think there's actually a real advantage to saying beforehand this week, you're going to be this this week, you're going to be the companion, etc. Yeah. Um, I've already said what I think, but I was just wondering what you think, Mike. <laughs> this is going to be, this is going to be the most non-answery lawyer answer. So it depends on the show for, for mock trial. We definitely have to, because we have, a prosecuting attorney defense. We have a victim. We have a, we, there, there are definitely like more structured roles. And I think in, 
I'm just going to go because we did a Star Wars show for May 4th, of course. Um, and it was a very, uh, it wasn't like a hero's journey story. It wasn't very narrative. We were just kind of playing some short form games in sort of the Star Wars universe. Whereas I think if you were doing like, let's say Harry Potter, and you were doing a show that's in that world and people were just wizards, then I think you don't necessarily need to pre-cast that. But if you were doing, hey, we have Hagrid is going to show up in this show and, you know, Dumbledore is going to show up in the show. I think it does help to precast those things because I mean, and I don't think that's really a cheat. I get, I totally agree with you, Chris, and get what you're saying that like the purists are saying, Hey, you know, just go with the moment and it'll happen organically. But like I, there's so much to think about in improv when you're not doing thematic improv. So you layer, Oh, by the way, you have to speak Shakespearean this whole time. Like I think giving a little bit of direction before the show is frees up the improvisers to do better improv. Yeah, I would say no one is more evangelical than the newly converted. That goes for religion and improv. Yeah. When you, st I can remember when I started, it was like, no, everything from the moment we start this show <laughs> must come up in the moment because that is the pure spirit of improv. And that is what I'm here for. But I think just... As you become an older, wiser, more veteran improv improviser, improver, mm, um, then you just realize that exactly what you said. Like we're doing a lot here, everyone. Uh, let's let's be let's let's make choices that are going to make our show better, a better product for our audiences. If you want to use a business term, let's give ourselves a break here a little bit, and there can be some small choices that really help your cast without compromising the uh, coarse spontaneity of what you're doing. So yeah, I'm a hundred percent on board. <laughs> yeah. You're, and, and again, to piggyback on what you said there, the ultimately the end goal is to put up an enjoyable product, not just for the house, but because the improvisers want to be proud of what they're doing. So if we're, if there's a time and a place for sure for being like, hey, we have this cast and we don't know what we're doing. We're going to step on stage. We're going to figure out what our opener is in the moment. And we're going to do this whole thing organically. And I love that. And there's a total time and place for that. But if I'm you know, promoting a Harry Potter show and everyone walks on stage and is looking around at each other and no one has any idea what's going on and we never see anything related to Harry Potter, then I've failed as a producer of that show or a director of that show. This is going to be amazing for podcasts, but I'm just going to now display... Uh, listeners, I am now displaying <laughs> my improv wand that I had when I was in the Harry Potter show. They made each of us a wand uh, to our personality and specifications. So we each had our own um, individual bespoke wand. So, uh, yeah, just like little things like that were special. And you got to learn how you would hold your wand and stuff. It just gave this layers of depth to it, you know. Just because it's made up on the spot doesn't mean that you can't prepare in interesting, beautiful ways to make your show better. Yeah, we have, as human beings and as characters, when we're playing a, just a standard non-thematic improv set, those characters have a history. So like, why don't we give ourselves a little bit of an advantage of knowing what their job was when they walk into the courtroom. So, or, or that they are Hagrid and they're the pet wrangler or whatever. Why not? They're, 
I, to me, the difference between figuring that out in the moment and just knowing going into the show. Also, I, I'm not a huge method actor, but I would might prepare a little bit differently if I knew I was playing Harry that night versus knew I was playing Hagrid or Hermione. Um, you know, there would be a, a different a different thing that I would have going into it and possibly even different costuming if you're going to if I know improv, we don't have costumes and all that stuff. But for some of these thematic things, I think there is. It, there's nothing wrong with adding, like you said, Chris, with the, having the wands. There's nothing wrong with some, maybe a couple props and yeah, some costumes. You, you totally need costuming, I think, to do. I mean, you don't have to, but there's so much fun to be had there. Why would you not yes. let yourself have that fun? Shakespeare, if you're not coming out in flowing white tops i'm and let's not think again marketability <laughs> let's think about photos yeah oh here's sure. you know you say here's our underwater adventure show and everyone's just in t-shirts and jeans and all the production stills <laughs> that's not interesting you want everyone in like i don't know what underwater adventure like diving bells and things like giant sure. old brass helmets and things. cool i want to do that show now <laughs> Is there anything that you absolutely uh, would say this needs to be improvised in these shows? Ooh, good question. Or can you can can you take any parts of what constitutes this show and then say, okay, this week we're gonna do this thing beforehand so that everything else? Can yeah, I think you can come up with your own combinations of scripted and improv stuff. Um, I think that's absolutely fine. Um, I recently did a virtual reality improv show set in space. Um, so obviously when you're doing virtual reality, you have to have the skin of your character. So I, I played a three foot squid alien called Biscuit. So I was always, I knew I was always going to be Biscuit um, because I could have to control that character. I had to put him on, right? Um, so... Uh, was and we also we wanted it to be a sitcom structure we were inspired by stuff like Futurama and Red Dwarf so we we had a structure which had an A and B plot like sitcoms often do and so we actually had quite strong structure all the way through but what that plot was uh, oh and we also knew which character was going to be in charge of each plot so like his an A plot this week is going to be this, B plot is this. But then what was improvised was the dialogue, the actual situation, what what was the constituent parts of the plot. Um, uh, but I would have, you know, I would be happy to go even more structured than that. We know that the first one is going to, there's going the ship is going to get in trouble somehow in this first scene. The second scene, we're going to um, find the alien menace that is the, this week's big bad that's oh a buffy show that would be good um uh, you know i think that's fine like, as long as you say beforehand this bit's going to be improvised and this bit's going to be structured then i think it's just a sliding scale um after that point and and everything's valid i'm an i am an open church everyone come and do improv um wherever you sit on that scale and Chris, when you say that, as long as you say before, do you mean say before to the cast? Yes, yeah, sorry, when you're rehearsing, when, you when like, you're deciding yeah. the show. Right. Yeah, I don't think you have to. I do see improv uh, troops that come out and painstakingly explain to the audience yeah. how this sausage is going to Girl. be made. 
And that is like, that's inside baseball of the worst kind. Like, no one cares. Hi, we're about to do a Harold. We're going to start with the group scene. (laughs) Then there's going to be three beats. We're going to introduce three different worlds. Then we're going to go back to a group scene. And then we'll revisit. (laughs) And it's all going to fall apart around beat two. So, uh, um, uh, it all, in in kind of related to Chris's point, I think part of it too that we've discovered in creating these shows, especially we had um, kind of with mock trial, but we had a Halloween show. The Halloween show basically we knew there was going to be a murder. We knew that these people were going to have these tropes that it, it basically played out like Clue, the movie, which is amazing. Um, so we, uh, I part of it we kind of decided like hey how much of this are we gonna do ask fors are we gonna have the audience give us and how much of this are we do we just kind of know that we know that this is gonna happen and we have to get to this beat um and i like chris said i mean i think if if it makes the show better layering on a little bit more of a structure to it then make your show better for sure because like why would we be I, I everyone gets that it's improv i mean like we're i and frankly i don't even think people care that much even if it wasn't if they're ultimately entertained and it's and it's laid out more st- structured more structure than an average improv show and the end game is like they walked out seeing holy cow, that was a great show. I mean, then we have have done our jobs. I would say don't script the whole damn thing because then just do a sketch show about it or write a spec script for Doctor Who. But, you know, other than that, you are improvising. You're you're improvising in this world. Um, Chris, can you give uh, an example on this? You you allude to an an A-B plot. What goes into the plot points? Is it like a... The prompts that you might also see in like a hero's journey that we'll so fa- famously Del Close sued Seinfeld <laughs> because Seinfeld always had an A, B, and C plot, and he was like, "This is just like the Herald." Um, uh, so yeah, so you know, sitcoms have three plots; you move between them. Friends is always a very good example of that because there were six main characters and you basically shunted off two into each of the plots each week. So your main plot, your A plot is really what that episode is about. It's the kind of, um, um, the, if people talk about the show, it's where the plot is almost B is some strong counterpoint to that main plot. And then C is just something really stupid Famously, again, in Friends, Phoebe, Lisa Kudrow, who played Phoebe, was always in the C-plot. She was like, when am I ever going to have something that actually means anything that changes the show? Um, she was always C-plot. Um, so, yeah, so they kind of go down in in importance in terms of plot drivers and, and their ability to change the status quo. Again, in sitcoms, your status quo does not change that much because that's the whole point. The situation remains largely the same Bart Simpson has been the age he's been for you know 30 years now (laughs) however long he's been because that's yeah when they started doing cartoon sitcoms you could really nothing ever had to change ever again which was really interesting too I'm going off on one a bit but yeah so that's the idea between those three (laughs) plots um you 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 give them to different characters to be in charge of and they um and they you know, interlinked together at the end in a very, 
I can now I can see why Del Close thought it was Harold. Yeah, they sort yeah. of come together at the end, and one affects the other very gently in the last uh, last bit of it. Seinfeld kind of mastered that. I didn't watch as much Friends, but I was a big Seinfeld disciple, and Seinfeld kind of mastered the three coming together at the end and and all inter. I mean, the classic one is when. Uh, George is the marine biologist and Kramer's C plot has been hitting golf balls into the ocean or George is pretending to be a marine biologist and he pulls the golf ball out of the blowhole at the very end of the episode. Spoilers for Seinfeld from 30 years ago. But <laughs> but uh but yeah, that Seinfeld really Seinfeld is kind of a masterclass on the Herald if you're ever interested in seeing some some beautifully done scripted Herald Seinfeld is is not a bad place to start. Chris, you mentioned that you uh, you actually gave these A and B things in the virtual reality sci-fi thing. Do you remember the examples of that? So, like, what did you, as a troop, say? This is A. This yes. Is B. Yeah. Sorry, I I talked generically again. So specifically in this show, which is called <laughs> which was called the Galaxical Implosions, we took two suggestions. One was the episode title. And one was uh, something you wanted to be when you were a kid. And the title was the A plot. So whatever, you know, if we had Revenge of the Killer Crab People, then the A plot would be that some killer crab people wanted revenge on us. And that would be that would be our A plot. And that would plug into certain scenes uh, throughout, throughout the structure. And then our B plot would be you know, something. If it was, I wanted to be a a firefighter, then we know that the B plot would be someone was having problems with f- spontaneous fires breaking out all over the ship. Um, so, so yeah. So we would take two audience suggestions, and they would each. I sort of see it as a DNA helix. These two plots wrapping together throughout the show, and we would know each time who who was in charge of sort of driving the a plot and driving the b plot it just made it feel more sitcommy in a in a way that we wouldn't if we'd just completely improvised it still be a good fun space story but i don't think people would come out feeling like they'd seen a sitcom which is the uh, what we wanted them to feel like something chris said right there made me think of something that is i think is helpful to be conscious of when you're doing a thematic show, when you do the ask fors and you're trying to solicit these gets, uh, you have to be careful to, if you don't want something that is specifically Harry Potter or specifically Dr. Who, and you want to have fit something into that world, you have to be kind of careful on your ask fors on what you want to get. So for like the, the crime at the beginning of mock trial, um, we basically have to get like, what's something that is not a weapon that you would use to like make the improv. So I, I think that's something to be a little bit more conscious of that you can guide them a little bit more on your ask force if you don't want that. But if you do want obviously something in that world, I don't think you have to be as conscious of that. But if you're, you know, if you're like, what is something Harry Potter has, you're going to get wand uh, unless you want to. So unless you want to go outside those tropes, I think you have to be a little specific in your ask for yeah i do a sci-fi show and we ask for one sci-fi thing and one really normal thing and mash them together that always creates really cool stuff so i memorably we did one which was a comic book store 
after the apocalypse. Um, and I, I really love having one thing that is very sci-fi and one thing that is very, very normal. That ordinary, extraordinary axis is a really fun one to play. Very nice. Is there, uh, um, I think we're uh, in, in a good place in, in accordance to uh, kind of what I had planned beforehand that we could talk about. Is there anything else on your minds? I got to get out to London, Chris, because I feel like you're my <laughs> spirit animal and I want to see some of these shows. <laughs> yeah, we should. It's, uh, it, yeah, it sounds amazing. Uh, yeah, we should talk more. That's nice, isn't it? It's always end, yeah. good to end a conversation by thinking you want to talk more. Yes. Absolutely. Maybe we can uh, uh, have like a coffee club or something. Uh, I love on, it on, <laughs> on here. I keep. Uh, I want to start an improv book club at the theater that where we just take on a new uh, a new book, improv book once a month or so, and just kind of sit down and, and chit chat about it because there's nice. so much. I feel like I do a ton of reading, like improv book reading and listening to podcasts and all those things. And then I talk my wife's ear off about it. And she's like, all right, all yeah, right. Yeah, I need more. That was the like thinking me. behind Improv Cinema Club that we would all look at a different director that perhaps. So we sort of made a pact that none of the directors would be straight white men. <laughs> so, you know, just so we could go into a lot of new areas. So we just, we did um, yeah. Agnes Varda, and then Chloe Zhang and Taika Waititi. Um, and it's just been incredible. We all watch this huge body of work each week, and then we all sort of come together and go like, how would we begin to improvise in this style? Uh, and yeah, so it's sort of part discussion group, part artists going, okay, well, here's a sort of interesting problem. How, if we were going to do this show, what would we want to what skills would we want to acquire? What things would we want to foreground? It's just a really fun thing to do. So yeah, I think doing that with books, like doing that with authors would be awesome. Should do it. That's awesome. Yeah, I so will. Maybe, maybe here at the end, um, <laughs> Michael, where can uh, people find you? Some of your uh, podcasts and, and stuff perhaps? Yeah, so uh, bitimprov.com is where we live on all the socials. We're at bitimprov and then bitimprov.com. Uh, if you're interested in going back and listening to the the serialized podcast that we've done, it was called The Bureau Boys, and it should still, I don't know, it should still be up somewhere. <laughs> I think if you look in a podcast or podcatcher, you can find it there. Um, and yeah, come, come take a class, check out a show. We're in Aurora, just about 45 minutes west of Chicago in the States. Very nice. How about you, Chris? Where can people? Well, more you? you should be able to go to chrismead.co, just C-O, not C-O-M, uh, chrismead.co to find everything I'm doing, classes and shows and podcasts. But it is currently down for maintenance. I'm remaking it. But, you know, I feel like this podcast will live for some time, right? So go to chrismead.co and hopefully I will have finished tinkering with it so that you can actually see what I'm doing. <laughs> Very nice. And now Chris, will you spell it? Because there's a, is there an E? Oh, yes. No, no? no E. So it's C-H-R-I-S-M-E-A-D, like the honey wine. Because there's a different Chris Mead with an E at the end that is, looks to be a volleyball Great. Player. Well done that, Chris Mead. <laughs> He's living the life that I wish I had. If Top Gun has got anything, is like, if that's what volleyball is like, yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, and unfortunately, uh, Mary is dropped out here, but I think that I'm going to find him um, in the Commons slash ICC office, and perhaps we will get to this topic on our own. Um, I don't think I ever introduced myself in this podcast, but my name is Simon <laughs> Lindebjerg. I am uh, an entrepreneur at Comus, uh, and thank you for listening in.